me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 John, a letter that the Apostle John has written to the church in Ephesus. We have been studying that from the uh, beginning of this year, looking at that uh, letter uh, for what we would call authentic Christianity. That was the purpose that John was writing the letter to uh, re-encourage uh, believers and to strengthen those who uh, perhaps were weak in their faith, that they might know what Christianity was. Beginning, John says the whole thing is, is rooted in the, the person of God and the person of Christ, uh, and that we who believe in Christ have fellowship with God. In other words, we have a relationship with God uh, that we can interact with Him. We're told that we are children of God when we believe in Christ as well. And then building upon that identity as being children of God, John continues to talk about different attributes that are inherent in those who are followers of Christ. This morning our text will be 1 John 3. We'll read verses 11 through 18. But before we come to the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come at this time committing ourselves to your Word. We are in need of hearing not only the wisdom that comes from you, uh, but this particular passage as well, because we are in need in whatever it is that you have ordained for us to hear, to strengthen us, to nourish us, to shape us, to encourage, perhaps at times even to break. But Lord, your purpose is always to build us that we might grow to be in conformity to who Christ is, that we who are your children would reflect the characteristics of you, our God. And I pray that as we study your word this time, that as your spirit applies it to our minds and to our hearts, that we would more and more grow to be like Christ and find in him and in that we have the joy and the freedom that we are looking for in so many places. Bless us now, not only as we study your word, but bless us that we may hear and be shaped by your word. We pray in the name of Christ, who is your word incarnated. Amen. 1 John 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. May the Lord bless us and grant us understanding from his holy word. A young Muhammad Ali, who was still known as Cassius Clay at the time, was raving about his greatness after a fight. 
sportscaster, Howard Cosell, observed, you seem rather truculent today, champ truculent, meaning aggressive and braggadocious and ferocious and uh, just really just kind of pushing yourself out there. Muhammad Ali then said, I don't know what truculent means, but if that's good, that's me. And that reminds me of a number of people I know, including not a small number of Christians. Not necessarily the truculent part, but not necessarily thinking about what a word means or an instruction means before we begin to apply the positive attributes to our, ourselves. We know there are certain characteristics that are supposed to be becoming of Christians or even as good people. And we, most of us, tend to think of ourselves as essentially good people and we quickly apply them to ourselves, though in our humility we'll admit that certainly not perfectly, but basically we embody whatever positive characteristics we want to, for people to think about us. We don't necessarily think about what the words themselves mean or the instructions mean, the depth of the instruction or the complexity it's given to us. We just assume we're pretty good. We, therefore, believing that we're essentially be good, whether we're confused or ignorant uh, about a definition, we apply the characteristic to, uh, to ourselves and kind of go from there. Uh, very contented, knowing there's room for growth, but not particularly worried because we're essentially self-assured. And I suspect there may be no other issue where that is true more than the issue of love. Most people would tend to think of themselves as loving people. Most people love at least someone. And for those that you don't love, there's probably good reason for it. They don't deserve it. Uh, they've annoyed you. Whatever the reason is, that they are exempt from the requirement to be loving individuals. At least that's my excuse. I don't think I'm alone. John here is instructing us on the issue of love, and there may not be anybody better qualified. John was known as the apostle of love. He had a tremendous transformation that had taken place in his own life. Earlier in his life, he had earned the nickname of a son of thunder. He and his brother had priory tempers, earned particularly or illustrated particularly in one instance when they, he, along with the other disciples, had followed Jesus into a town. Jesus had tried to minister to the people, and the people had rejected. Nobody had followed Jesus. And so as they were leaving... John and his brother had suggested to Jesus that the response of these people who didn't buy in uh, is, is death. They said, why don't we just call down a fireball from heaven and just wipe them all out? It's the original turn or burn message. You don't like me? We'll send you to hell. Uh, that's, that was what John actually was applying. But over time with Jesus, his life was transformed. He saw the love of Christ. He experienced the love of Christ. John stood amazed and he described himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Not because he was saying, I'm the one Jesus loved, the other ones he likes, but he uh, loves, but because he stood amazed that God, who had come in the flesh and knew him, would love him. He was humbled and awed and never got beyond the fact that Jesus loved him. And John became known as the apostle of love, even though he had that fiery beginning and the reputation early in his life, because in all of John's writings, he goes into great depth on the topic of love. Jesus had made a tremendous impact on his life. John, more than any other writer in all of the scripture, touches on, defines, and challenges those who are followers of Christ to live a life that is a life of love. And here in this passage, John essentially is reminding us that this 
characteristic, love, is one of two birthmarks that belong to all who are children of God. We saw the last one as we looked in our study last week, which is righteousness. That is, a faith in Christ, understanding who Christ is, propels us. The gospel compels us to demonstrate our faith through right action, through, uh, through goodness, deeds of charity and, and, and caring for other people. Righteousness is faith that propels you into that action. And now John says the other birthmark is love that he's dealing with in the passage that we have before us today. Now, in one sense, John says it's nothing new. We look here in verse 11, and John says, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John's saying, you know, there's, in one sense, there's nothing new to learn. You've heard it before. You've been instructed before. You, you've got that. And in another sense, he's saying that there's, this is something that you've, you've seen before from the beginning, because the very nature of the gospel itself is, a, is the illustration that compels you to understand what love is. From the beginning, when you saw the gospel that transformed your heart, that enabled you to believe, you were drawn by the love of God and the love of Christ. When you saw how you were loved, it melted your hard heart and enabled you to come and caused you to come into his presence. And so in that sense, it is, it's nothing new. It's an old commandment. Love one another. And yet, even though it's nothing new, John here in this passage intersperses a, a series of warnings along with his affirmations in order to illustrate what it is that he wants believers to understand in order that it would become more and more characteristic of our lives. And we can sum up what John is saying really in, in two, two categories and two points, the first of which is this, is John is telling us that love is an attitude. Now, he begins by a contrast, giving contrasting examples. On the one hand, there's Cain. On the other hand, there's Christ. Seems to be an odd place to begin because he says, you've heard this before, love one another. And then he moves on to a guy whose claim to fame is that he killed his brother. Doesn't seem to fit. But there is a purpose behind it, and it's important for us to consider. Because what John says here in verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was evil and murdered his brother. Now, it's really easy for us to dismiss this or to look at this, check it off, and move on as if we have it covered. In other words, it, you could read this and say, don't be like Cain who killed his brother. And so I can look at myself and say, I don't even have a brother, so I'm safe there. I haven't killed any sisters, so I'm good to go. Let's move on to the rest of the passage. Or you, most of us here, so far as I know, are safe if you look at this passage as saying, don't be like Cain who killed his brother didn't kill anybody, we're good to go. But if we look at the passage that way, if we just take a quick glance and think that that's what John is saying, is love is don't kill somebody, and that Cain is only a good example for us in terms of whether we are extreme, we're missing not only John's point, but tremendous benefit and opportunity for us to grow in understanding of how we may grow, not only in grace, but grow in love as well. See, we need to look at Cain for what Cain is like we see in the passage, John touches on it and talks about his, his life and his characteristics. But I want you to look at this passage in a way that uses the fact that he killed his brother as kind of like biographical commentary. So John's calling you and me to look at the person of Cain, what he's like. The fact that he happened to ultimately have killed his brother, 
while important and significant to what John is talking about, it's not the essence of what he's talking about. He's saying, don't be like Cain, period. And then as we skip the part for, for a moment about killing his brother, he says, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, just so we're all on the same page, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. I don't do this often, but Cain's uh, story is there, and we need to understand uh, exactly what it is that John is calling our attention to. In Genesis chapter 4, I'll begin reading in the second part of verse 2, reading for the next several verses. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So we have the, the story of Cain here, but as we now have that background, now we can look at Cain and understand perhaps what Cain was like. I suspect that Cain was probably like a lot of people we know and a lot of us here. He probably just assumed himself to be a pretty good guy. You know, he was doing what he was supposed to do. He was going to work. He was doing the job that the Lord had called him to do. The Lord uh, asking for sacrifices. He was bringing sacrifices. The fact that his brother was bringing the first choice, the best of what he had, and Cain was just kind of going through the motions. But Cain was at least doing stuff. He was in motion. He wasn't totally ignoring God, wasn't ignoring his responsibility. And so very likely would consider himself to be a fairly good guy. But we see some characteristics of Cain as well. Cain had obvious insecurity issues. It's evident in the fact that he began to be jealous when God received his brother's sacrifice and didn't really, wasn't impressed with what Cain was bringing. And he allowed that insecurity to blossom into jealousy. And it's at this point where he's allowing jealousy to begin to blossom into bitterness and even into anger that the Lord confronts him. And the Lord says, look, don't you understand? You have the opportunity as well. You can walk with me. You can choose not to walk with me. You can give me your whole heart and receive blessing. You can give me half heart and receive and, and, feel, um, and feel distant. You have the opportunity to determine whether you will live with joy or whether you're going to live with what you're experiencing right now. And he said, 
you've got to choose. He said, the sin is in your heart. And then he uses kind of poetic language, poetic imagery in saying, it is crouching, ready to pounce. The picture of a lion just waiting. The sin is in your heart, and if you do not master it, it will devour you. And Cain, rather than acknowledging the reality and dealing with the emotions that he had in his heart, allowed them to continue to build and build and build until ultimately his insecurity, which became jealousy, which became bitterness, which became anger, which became rage, became expressed itself in murder. And the reason that we're told to look at Cain is not because at the end he murders, and we're just called not to murder anybody. But we're called to look at Cain because most of us, all of us, are like Cain. All of us have insecurities. All of us have experienced and feel jealousy at other t- from time to time, some more than others. And jealousy then begins to breed bitterness and bitterness into anger. And we've experienced all of those very same emotions. John is aware of that because that's the common state of all humanity apart from an intervention of God coming in and a relationship with Christ and changing our hearts entirely. That we just are driven by our emotions. These are very common emotions. We don't really think much about it when we see them in other people, even when they come and say, I'm wrestling with these things. We understand when somebody is feeling insecure or jealous, bitter or angry. We don't want them to live there, but we understand. Because at one time or another, We've all experienced them, and we probably assume we'll experience them again. But what John is showing us here in this story is that if we do not recognize those characteristics in our life, we don't recognize the ways in which we are like Cain, and then take mastery over our sin, confessing them, acknowledging that we we are so self-absorbed, so self-focused, so insecure, that it's eating us alive sin or the hardness of our heart will devour us much like it did there. The picture here is not, don't be like Cain and don't kill your brother. Look at Cain and to realize that Cain was a lot like us and because he didn't deal with his own heart, in his case, it ended up in murder that any of us are capable of. Now, not everybody who experiences this ultimately expresses it in murder. But you see essentially a normal guy allowing his own disappointments, his own emotions to overcome him and ends in tragedy and in cursing his own life. I believe John picks Cain because he is a vivid illustration of the ways of the world. The next passage makes no sense unless we understand that Cain is a demonstration of the values of the world apart from Christ. And so when John goes on next and says, don't be surprised if the world hates you, there is a sense in which there's a warning, but he's he's really just building on kind of the whole mindset of Cain. The world is driven by their emotions, by their feelings, by their self-focus, by getting ahead, by their own agenda. And apart from God intervening in the lives of people, that's what drives them. So it shouldn't be surprising that we live in an environment that is sometimes unstable, unsafe, because people are driven by their passions and by their emotions. They have not taken hold of them. So Cain is a personal example of the world as a whole, and so if you multiply Cain into a society, into a culture, hate is prevalent and certainly present. 
It's not the only characteristic, but it is always present. But the other reason I believe that John chose Cain as an example is not only that he is a personal embodiment of, of the characteristic of the world, but he's a perfect contrast to the love of Christ. Because Cain's story is this. He saw his brother's situation, became angry, and killed him. Christ's situation is this. He saw the situation of his people, loved us, and laid down his own life. John is saying love is an attitude. By giving the example of Cain and saying, look, we're all predisposed to the very same things that led him to murder. We need to deal with it. And we're reminded that we need to cultivate those things that lead us out of being driven by our emotions and cultivate a love that is demonstrated as perfectly as Jesus has demonstrated. And that very thing is the gospel itself because that's the focal point of this passage. And John says in verse 16, and by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's the primary thing that he is getting at at this point. We know what it is and here's what we ought to do. And so that's the centerpiece. John is cultivating that, beginning with this illustration of Cain, contrasting it with Christ and saying, you and I need to deal with our hearts. You and I need to get a grip on our emotions, realize where we are, take them to the cross so that we get them under control, because if we don't, they will drive us, eat us alive, and cause us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise think we would do, in some cases with tra tra tragic consequences. On the other hand, if we look to the cross, if we look to what Christ has done, and there we see what love is, we're reminded that we are the beneficiaries of that love, it changes our lives significantly. John is saying, love is an attitude. Cultivate those things that will bring about love, which is reminding yourself of what Christ has done. Remind yourself of how great the love of God the Father is, the love of Christ that he would give himself for you. It's a shift in attitude. Not only is an example, there's a powerful dynamic in the gospel that changes our mindsets. But John says also that love is not just an attitude, but John is quite clear here that we need to understand that love is an action. Verse 18, he sums it up very well when he says, let's not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. In other words, don't love with your words only. Don't be in love with the concept of love. Let's see it. Show it. And I think this is an important message for us because I think this is one of our greatest challenges. Because most people think of themselves as essentially loving, it's easy for us to just assume that we love because we can find many examples and cite many examples of the people that we do love. But in this passage, it's interesting between verses 16 and 18, John does something that's inter is interesting in his language. Because he, in verse 16, he's being fairly general. By this we know what love is, that Jesus laid his life down for us. 
And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's kind of a broad category of anyone else who is a believer. In particular, he's talking about the congregation of which they're a part of, but it's inclusive of all believers everywhere. Now, he begins to describe it in verse 17, and there's a shift change from a very broad to a very specific mindset. In verse 17, he says this, but if anyone has the world's goods and he sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And so he moves from the very general to specific situations. In other words, he zeroes it down to a specific individual, not a particular person, but we're looking at kind of humanity in general to looking at individuals that we can actually see. That's an important shift. C.S. Lewis made the observation uh, that the um, loving everybody in general may be an excuse to love nobody in particular. And so for us to say, oh, I love people. Man, if somebody who knows you a little bit starts listing off people that annoy you, well, accept them or accept them, accept them. Well, there are exceptions, of course, but I love people. We need to be real realistic in our hearts because John is saying something here that is pretty powerful. He's saying love is an action. Jesus, the demonstration of the gospel, Jesus came, that's an action. Jesus laid down his life, that's an action. It's a demonstration for a specific purpose. And we ought to do as he did for other people in very practical ways. And so instead of just being very general about laying down his life, because we're willing to say, okay, yeah, I love, and you know, if I see somebody in trouble, I'd be willing to die for them. John now gets to where we live day by day. Not a lot of opportunities for us, at least in our culture, to lay down our life for our brothers, whether for the sake of faith or anything else. We're in a pretty safe environment here. Was it the list that came out this past week that is, uh, Williamsburg is the ninth safest city in Virginia? I meant to talk to Jack earlier and want to know why we're not higher, but that's an uh, issue. But, uh, just, you know, we need to work on this. But we're in the ninth safest place. We're a pretty safe place. Not likely that we're going to have to lay our lives down. And then even despite what we may feel with the tide of the culture, we're not likely to be dying for our faith as we live here. But there are other things that we are called to demonstrate that are ways that we die, die to ourselves day to day for other people. And John captures it here. In verse 17, he's saying, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and he's saying specific people, if you see anyone, a particular brother in need, and then what I don't like about the ESV or mostly other translations either is they sanitize what God is saying so much. But in the ESV it says, and yet closes his heart against him. In the Greek it would be more literally translated, shuts his bowels. On the street it means if you see your brother as a need and you don't give a, I'm not going to finish, you can finish the word, you all know what that means. That's exactly what John is trying to say. If you see a brother in need and you don't give a, however you want to finish that, how can the love of God be dwelling in you? It moves from the whole idea that we would just simply lay down our lives. Now, there's nothing simple about that, but there's not a lot of opportunity to do that. So now you see somebody who's in need. Now, here's, here's a caveat. If you have the resources... There are times and there are people who don't have certain resources, whether it's a financial resource or a tangible resource, maybe even an emotional resource that is necessary to help particular people who are in need. And if you don't have it, you don't have it. 
but we all have something. We see people who are in need, and we don't care. John's saying that's inconsistent with the love that which we have been loved with, the love which we profess to have. It's inconsistent with the love uh, that should be inherent in the child of God. Because love is an action. It tells us here that by this illustration, love sees and love is aware. And that's an important thing. One of the questions that we can ask ourselves, are we aware of the needs of our brothers and sisters? In the congregation? I mean, I've heard the gripes. Don't take them personally because it was Brandon's fault that you went to two services. I think it was a wise move, but I didn't get the vote on that. I would have voted with that, just to be clear, but I, I didn't get to vote on it, so blame somebody else at this point. Well, I don't know everybody. We are too, yeah, yeah, I just, you know. I also know they, well, there are just too many people. And there's some sense that both of those are true, and I get it. You can't really know everybody when you have 300 or 400 people that are periodically in and out of the church. But that doesn't mean that your ability to know other people has maxed out. You can't know what's going on in other people's lives. That you, there's no room for growth in that. And then what you see in their lives, their needs, that you can't invest in the lives of other people. It's easy for us to check out on the difficulty of the complexity John here is demonstrating you zero in on specifics. Do you know what's going on in the lives of other people in the church? Other believers in town? Believers around the world? And do you have anything that can be contributed to the alleviation of the difficulty they're experiencing? John is saying that we need to be asking ourselves, do we even see? And our tendency sometimes is just kind of look away. Or we kind of look and it becomes so commonplace that we just don't, we just don't see it. John's illustration, Christ's definition, uh, demonstration is that love sees and is aware, and then love acts even self-sacrificially, giving of yourself for the benefit of other believers who are in need. Paul Long was a missionary in the Belgian Congo, which then later became Zaire and then became the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But when he was in the Congo... Uh, he encountered a, a woman named Tashila who became a believer and upon becoming a believer uh, went to Paul's house, stood in the backyard. His wife said, you need to come and speak with this lady in the backyard because she's declaring herself to be your second wife. And Paul went out and said, who is this woman declaring to be my second wife? One's quite enough already. I don't need a second wife. And then he explained to this woman who just assumed that that's what it meant to be connected to the one who had shared the gospel with her. And he explained, well, you can be more like a sister or a daughter to Sheila, thought was fine with that. But she was a zealous disciple, one who listened carefully to what Paul was teaching, even to an extent that Paul himself sometimes felt embarrassed and ashamed and sometimes annoyed. One of the annoyances was a time that Sheila came to his house and had a lady with him that looked pretty bad and tired and worn out. And as Paul came to the backyard and said, Sheila, good evening. Um, who is this that you have with, us, with you? And Sheila responded, this is a woman who has no meat to eat. 
Paul responded, very few people have meat to eat, and we barely have enough for our family uh, alone, and so we don't have anything to spare. Do you understand? And Sheila said, I do understand. But I also see that chicken that I gave you last week, so I'll just take that and give that to her. And then she will have meat to eat. A few weeks later, Sheila arrived again in the backyard. And this time, it was a little more stunning than just having a woman who was in need of something to eat. But as Paul describes in his own memoirs, Paul says this. One morning, Sheila arrived in our yard with an old, naked woman. Paul said, why did you bring this naked woman into our yard? And Sheila said, she has no blanket, and the nights are cold. Paul says, I was wiser now in the ways of African women and the deeper customs of the Baluba people. And so leaning on logic, understandable to the Congolese, I answered, to Sheila, this woman is not a member of the new tribe. That's what they were, for believers, were calling themselves. And so, (coughs) excuse me, there are countless naked women all around us who have no blanket tonight. You would not want me to show partiality, would you? I knew I had her there because partiality is looked upon unfavorably among the tribesmen. And Sheila responded, that's right, she cheerfully replied. You can't show partiality, and there are so many people who have a need. And so she and the woman left, and Paul said that he thought that the issue was resolved until that evening. Outside on the back porch, I found Tashila squatting naked, like the old woman who had come with her in the morning. Paul went out and greeted her, saying, life to you, Sheila. And she said, life to you. Paul said, it's been a hot day, hasn't it, to Sheila? And she said, yes, teacher, it has been very hot. And Paul looked around, he said, but it looks like it might get quite cool tonight, don't you think? And Sheila said, it's already getting quite cold. And Paul said, is that right? Well, then why are you in my backyard naked if you're already cold? And Sheila said, I gave my dress away to the poor woman who was here with me this morning. Paul said, then I guess you will sleep cold tonight, to Sheila. Oh, no, teacher, Sheila replied. You see, I gave my dress away because you could not show partiality to the pagan woman with all the others around us in need, and that is right. But I am of the new tribe of the people of Jesus, and you can't leave me in need, can you? A little while later, Sheila plodded down the path toward the hospital wearing a new dress, a blanket draped around her shoulders. She thanked me with a happy laugh and departed singing her funny little song about the goodness of God. And Paul ends the story by saying he does give thanks for Sheila, who has made me a better Christian, even a better Christian than I really want to be. See, Sheila understood instinctively exactly what John is describing here. She was aware of a need. In this case, not of one who was in the family, but we're told to love elsewhere. John's focus in this passage is our love for other believers. In this case, she was loving a neighbor. But she understood and knew so well God's family demonstrates love in practical ways. And that if she exhausted her own resources, taking the very clothes off of her back, God's people could not turn their back on her and her need and would provide that need. She's a beautiful demonstration of exactly what Paul is talking about. 
Right, so Schaefer, thinking of this concept, if not this particular passage, but focusing mostly on Jesus' high priestly prayer, praying for the unity of the believers, that we would love one another as the Father and the Son love one another. Takes the two aspects of Jesus' prayer and says that the mark of love is the mark of the Christian. Because there is a sense in which, based on Jesus' prayer, based on whether we love one another, Jesus is actually declaring that the world around us, the unbelieving world, has a right to judge whether we truly belong to Christ based on whether they see evidence of our loving one another. And the only evidence is not merely an attitude, but it's through action. It's through awareness of one another. It's through praying and lifting up one another. It's through giving to one another, sacrificing. <coughs> Excuse me. Because that's the only thing people can see. They can't see how you feel without the actions. And if people do not see the demonstration of the love, Schaefer, I think, rightly concludes, look at the passage, that the world has a right to say they must not belong. And then he goes even more astounding, because based on Jesus' prayer, Schaefer points out that the world around us has a reason to deny the Father has even sent the Son if there's not evidence of the love that we have toward one another. John describes love. I would love to dig into it further because we're just really just touching on it in the practical ways, but he is saying love is an attitude that must be cultivated and love is expressed through action. Both are necessary to meet the qualifications and the demonstration of the gospel itself. And he's not only calling us to do that, saying, here's the standard. He's calling our attention to it, one, so that we can confess that we don't meet those standards, so that we can experience love that is beyond our ability. In other words, we feel like we got it down until we realize we come up short, and then once again, we're going to the cross confessing that I don't love the way I ought to love. Lord, that's called sin. And I realize the sin has been paid for. And the love of God is continuing to be given to me. And I realize a depth of love I'd never experienced before, which then enables me to love all the more. That's how we cultivate the attitude, but Paul's saying it's demonstrated, it should be demonstrated, I mean, John's telling us it should be demonstrated among us. One final short story. A story in Kenneth Latourette, was a professor at Yale, and he asked the question, why did Christianity win? And then he wrote an article uh, on that question. In other words, how did Christianity from such tiny beginnings with no clout behind it, no support, no political, how did it become the dominating force, at least in the Western world? How did it become a worldwide faith? And he was asking it from a historian's position. And he said, this is a question that disturbs historians because Christianity was not particularly well-backed, nor was it strategically connected. And yet, even in the pluralistic and polytheistic Greco-Roman world, Christianity trumps all of the religions. And in his article, he has a hypothesis of five points, and I want to just share three of them quickly right now. He said, first, pagan deities were tied to particular regions or limited to a particular people, but Christianity appealed to everyone. No other group could take in so many. In other words, while every other deity at the time 
were limited to a particular people and were identified. Christianity is encompassing the globe. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your nationality. It doesn't matter what you have done. All can be included and encompassed in that, and all who are included in that don't become separated. We become one, and the love that is to be demonstrated was demonstrated crossing over barriers that had never been crossed over before, and that was scandalous and intriguing to a world. He went on and said, but that still doesn't answer the question of why Christianity succeeded. For the historian must ask, why did such unprecedented inclusivity appear in Christianity when it never had in any other religion to date? And the one tenable answer is the unique teaching and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. For Jesus was not only a teacher showing the way of salvation, he was the one accomplishing salvation through the giving of himself, a demonstration of love that was replicated by those he had come to save. It's the power of the gospel at work in those who believed and then demonstration to those who were a watching world. It's easy for us to look around and say, Christianity is on decline. Statistically, it certainly is true in the West. Cheer up, it's not true actually because it's exploding in China and it's exploding in Latin America and Christianity has more people than ever before and it is the fastest growing religion in the world. We just don't hear about that. But it is true that in our culture, what has been blessed with everything that is on decline, and one of the reasons I suspect is because we do not love one another the way we are called to. Christians are in competition. Churches are in competition for other people. It's about us and our success and not about Christ and certainly not about people. And it's reason for us to be frustrated. It's reason for us to repent. But it's also reason for us to hope. See, there was no reasonable reason for Christianity to flourish in the first place. And even though we're on the decline, the same gospel that took the world then is the one that is at work within us and around the world. And it is both a theological and a historical fact that the gospel understood creates the kind of love and inclusivity that is undeniable, that is intoxicating, that is infectious. Let us be a people who love, not just in words, but in deeds as well. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this word and pray that you would bless us, strengthen us in your love. Point us to the cross that we may grow to understand the love and that it would take root in our lives, expressed to our neighbors, expressed to those in the household of faith. This we pray to you, for it is by your spirit that it happens. But we do pray that you would cultivate that within this church and through your church worldwide. I pray in the name of Jesus.